Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalist Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. And the headlines in the paper, oh my goodness, this thing is on my mind a lot. Making a heart call, letting a pro athlete skip news conferences is a complicated issue issue, but Osaka deserves compassion. Talk about Naomi Osaka, the great tennis player who dropped out of the French Open. Uh, that's on my mind a lot, but I'm not going to be talking about that today with my distinguished guest. No, my distinguished guest and I are going to get in our time capsule and go back 50 years when we were young men, very young. Uh, so without further ado, I will ask my distinguished guest, who's exactly as old as I am, <laughs> and he can't pretend that he's any younger, to introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Sergio Mims. Um, I am uh, a film journalist. I'm a film critic. I am also the co-programmer and the, uh, the co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival. Um, I also do DVD commentaries. I have a bunch of them coming out uh, between now and the end of summer um, for a keynote. Uh, Lober and also one for Scorpion releasing, kind of exploit exploitive title, exploitative title, name of a company. Also, um, I have a, a major piece coming out next month on RogerEbert.com. So uh, check out for that one. Um, pretty lengthy work about John Ford. So um, oh, okay. I am busy as I can be. You know, uh, right now, of course, the festival. It's taking up a lot of time, uh, as it usually does. It takes a year to put it together. It literally does. And this year, the dates are from November 4th to December 2nd. Now, anybody who has been following Black Harvest knows that almost always we, we're in August. Uh, the reason why we're in November this year is because last year we did a streaming version of the festival that was in November. And that worked out really, really well for us. It, it, you know, the numbers were bigger. I, I mean, bigger than anybody anticipated. 
So mm. when we came to this year, our main goal is to be back in the theater. Streaming services, fine, but people want to be back in the movie theater, in the Gene Siskel Film Center, where they have two screens, uh, two theaters. One's 200. Yeah, one, one about 200. The other one holds about 100 people. People like to see the movies in the theater. They want to uh, meet the filmmakers. Of course, they like the receptions and the food. Okay. <laughs> and so when we were deciding this year when to have it, a couple months ago, when things looked they were becoming more positive, August looked iffy. So on the safer side of caution, we decided to do it in November again. Now, next year, we'll be back in a regular slot in August. But we'll be back in November um, in the movie theater. Uh, we might have a few things available streaming online. And that will particularly take place over the Thanksgiving weekend. Because let's face it, theater will be closed. Nobody wants to go out. Okay. Um, turns out we could have had an August anyway, considering Lollapalooza. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crazy. Uh, absolutely. No, I'm crazy. thinking about a little money under the table action in there. Yeah, somewhere. Uh, well, that would be appropriate for Chicago. But here's the thing: Can I say something? How is it that the Old Town Art Fair can happen? I think this weekend or next weekend, but the High Park Art Fair has been canceled for the second year in a row. Uh, and when generally is the Hyde Park Art Fair? First weekend in June would have taken place okay. to starting tomorrow. So uh, long-time listeners of this podcast, and before that, uh, my radio show, real, recognize, of course, know Sergio is a regular guest. You also know, because he's a regular guest, that he is uh, a lifelong resident of Hyde Park. As such, he has a typical Southsiders bias against uh, the North Side and has the typical Southsiders chip on his shoulder, which is really, I can understand why they have it, because they feel mm -hmm. everything is favored to the North Side, because there's a good reason they feel that way, because guess what? It is. Uh <laughs> Just like today, today, there was an article saying that the CTA is going to make some re major renovations on the red line. <laughs> and I said, hey, that's great. You know, they can really work on 47th Street. They can work. Yeah. No, it's Argyle. And, <laughs> and they go like. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. It's always the north side. You're absolutely correct. Okay, but then in that article, I read the same article. Me, they go, don't worry, south side. We're coming for you in about okay, 10 years. Let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you something. Um, yeah. Another story. About two weeks ago, my internet went out for about two, three days, uh -huh. you know. I said, oh, brother. Okay, so finally a guy came. He had to go down. The connection box is across the street uh, in an alley. Okay, locked down. So he was there for a long time. He comes back. He says, I had to work in that thing three times. He says, you know, this whole system is antiquated. I said, it is? He said, yeah, it's old-fashioned. He says, you know, up on the north side, <laughs> and in the suburbs, they have fiber opticals. They got all that stuff. And, and this stuff is old. And I said, well, when are they going to replace this? Oh, maybe a year and a half from now. 
Yeah, no, it's no joke. There is a bias. Everybody knows it. Anybody who rides a bicycle through the city of Chicago knows it. The potholes on the south side are the last to be replaced and filled up, no matter who the mayor is. It could be a north side mayor. It could be a south side mayor. It was this way under Daly, who was a south sider, okay? The north side still got it. All right, let's move away. Let's get to the the, the crux of the matter. Uh, last week, we did the best records of 1971. That's what got me going, and now I'm obsessed with 71. It's the 50th year anniversary. The following week, we're going to do the best sports of 71, talk about Ali Frazier mainly. Uh, and uh, I have a few tricks up my sleeve, some political discussion as well. Sergio Mims is perhaps the smartest guy when it comes to movies that I know. The guy knows more about movies than anybody else. He not only puts the Black Harvest Film Festival together, he not only uh, does voice work uh, for um, for movies uh, on DVDs, etc., and so forth, but he writes scholarly pieces for Ebert.com. So the man knows his movies. 1971 was the year. I just said to Sergio and I texted to him, come on the show, talk about 1971. He texted back without looking it up, like five movies. And Sergio, I have to tell you, the movies that you sent me, not one of them were nominated for Best Picture of the Year in 1970. I was just, just going to say, the movies that got the recognition in real time are not the movies that have stood the test of time when it comes to 1971. Uh, I will now read to you the movies that were nominated for Best Picture of the Year, and I would love to get your reaction uh, to each of these movies, and I know you've seen them. I know you have seen these movies. Okay, Best Picture of the Year, the winner was French Connection. Your thoughts on the French Connection? I've never been a huge fan of that movie simply because uh, two major reasons. First of all, the lead character is a racist asshole. And I said, well, if I'm supposed to be sympathetic to this guy, how am I supposed to be like that? Okay. Number two, it doesn't have an ending. If you know the movie, the movie ends with this purposely ambiguous ending, which I hate. I Sometimes they work. Sometimes, a lot of times they don't. And in this case, it, it really doesn't. It, it's like in the middle of a scene, and you're like, what happened? I'm just kind of thinking, <laughs> I'm just thinking, I like the sequel. I think the sequel is a lot better. The French Connection 2, directed by John Frankenheimer. I think that film's a lot better. Wow. So, uh, and there's some people who believe that, too. I mean, we're a small minority, but I, I really think that it's different. Um he he still he, uh, Popeye uh, Doyle is still a racist asshole, but yes, he gets his comeuppance in this one. Okay, so yeah, uh, so go ahead, name me another picture. Well, all right, so here's the deal, uh, and you're abs- you took you took the words out of my mouth. I watched French Connection in real time when it came out in 1971, when I was a young lad at Evanston High School, and it a young white lad. I should emphasize this point. Because it didn't occur to me that he was a racist asshole until I watched it again about two or three years ago after 50 years of watching politics in Chicago and policing issues in Chicago. And I, th- I said, oh, my God, this guy is a racist asshole. He's just routinely beating the crap out of black yeah. people who aren't guilty of anything. Why didn't I see this in 1971 when I was a young lad at Evanston High School? Uh, so the question for you, Sergio, is... Were you? Did you see it in real time? Did you recognize it in real time in 1971 when you were a young lad at Kenwood High? Yes, because when you're, yeah, because when you're black, you notice things. I, I'll give you an example, okay? Okay, of another movie, all right? You remember Gremlins? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I vaguely remember. I saw it, but it had no impact on me. Go ahead. Okay, Gremlins, okay? When that movie came out, every black person said, you know, that movie's really about black people. The little Gremlins are really black people. They come into a white neighborhood, they tear shit up, they're playing music loud, and um, uh, they're really sort of like metaphorically, they're like black people, okay? And I remember telling this to white people who loved this picture, and I said, well, you know, they're really black people. And they're like, I never saw that. Yeah, because you're white. <laughs> you know? yeah. Black people, we pick up on things like it's that. A, it's amazing how that works. Right. So, yeah, but the thing is, Popeye Joel uh, is this uh, tough uh, cop detective in New York played by Gene Hackman, and there's this scene where he has this informant. Uh, he, he goes into a bar, and he drags the informant into a back room, and then he says, I got to pretend I'm beating you up. And so he just, like, whacks the guy. And the, this is the scene. He punches him. So it's, so it, the point is to conceal the fact that the man is an informant so he will not be picked on by his friends or beat up or murdered or whatever for being a snitch. And so he literally punches the guy. And that's just the least of the amount of brutality uh, that co- occurs in this movie. Uh, yeah, and don't forget, at the end of the movie, he, he shoots and kills another cop. Who? Which one does he shoot and kill? I'm trying to remember. Are you sure this is this one and not... Uh, I'm just trying to... Yeah, yeah, at the end. He, he pulls his gun on somebody, turns up, it's a cop or a federal agent, somebody like that. And yeah, he's, okay, he's a law yeah. enforcement officer. He shoots and dead. Yeah. <laughs> he's never punished for it. So, all right, let me ask you this question. Well, I was running the subject. So do you think movies that are clearly, uh, in this case, like racist or uh, definitely behind the times, to speak it euphemistically, should be canceled? Or do you think they should be presented with some kind of discourse at the beginning and in the end to talk about what you're about to see? First of all, no movie should be canceled. That's number one. No film should be canceled. I, I hate that term, canceled. No film should be canceled. You know, if you don't want to see it, don't see it. You know, now don't talk about Confederate statues. That's a different subject because those guys were traitors. They were traitors. Name me any, name me any other country in the world that has statues devoted to traitors against their country. All right. Now, um, but no, no film should be canceled. Should it be a warning? Well, it depends on the movie. Like, um, say films were really extreme racist imagery. Um, say, Birth of a Nation, okay? Birth of a Nation definitely should not be canceled at all. As a matter of fact, it should be seen more and more. You know, I just recently concluded a class for the Cisco Film Center, uh, which ran eight weeks. It was uh, uh, about... Uh, Black imagery, black male imagery in movies, in American films. And I started out with Birth of a Nation because that's a seminal movie. That's a seminal film. And particularly in terms of black imagery. Now, there were negative black images before Birth of a Nation, but Birth of a Nation really brought back the, the rejuvenized the Ku Klux Klan uh, at that period. So that's a very, should that film be canceled? Absolutely not. I think more people should see that picture. So no, I'm not down with canceling anything, but put it into context. Uh, and you should discuss it. And French Connection definitely uh, falls into that category. Uh, all right. 
another movie nominated in, uh, again, these movies came out in 71. The Oscars were doled out in 72. But anyway, 71, one of the other nominees, Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. Uh, your thoughts on Clockwork Orange 50 years later? Well, it goes back to what we're talking about. There's some films being made back then you can't make today. And I think that um, Clockwork Orange was nominated for an Oscar? Wow. Okay. Yes. I remember. Um, uh, it, it's a movie that, when you look at it now, really predict, really predicted the future. It really did. And why I say that the 1970s were the greatest decade of filmmaking ever. I mean, uh, I'm going to need some other pictures, but Clockwork Orange is a movie you couldn't make today. And that's a brilliant movie. It really is. And it says a lot about society at the time and really a lot about what society was going to become. You know, now I can see. People, Why do you say you can't make it now? Oh, people say because cancel culture, you know, it's sexist, it's, uh, it's misogynist. Yeah, that's the point. The point of the movie is that this character is, or, and his group are really reprehensible. That's the point. And when the government tries to do experiments on him to um, cure, uh, basically change his behavior, it backfires on them in a way they didn't predict. So he, in the end, he reverses back to his old ways. Um, it's a it's a movie that attacks government. It attacks um, <laughs> liberal do good do goodism. Um, it attacks society. It attacks. Um, the culture country. It, I mean, it, it, this movie goes deals with so many different directions, and uh, it's an extraordinary picture. You know, haven't seen it in a while, um, and it was a point where I didn't want to see it because it. When you look at it now, it really wasn't comfortable. You know, I cut school to see that movie, and it, it got an ex. I cut school. I remember I was in school, and I got out of school to go downtown to see the picture. I I don't know. I made up some kind of lie or something. And you caught the bus, went downtown, uh, and saw Clockwork. That's a brutal fo- uh, movie to see. I remember when I saw it in real time, scared the hell out of me. And when I, I saw it about five years ago, I rented it, uh, DVD. And uh, Sergio, it's still a very difficult movie to watch. Yeah, it is. Uh, and that way, it um, remains exceedingly relevant. And the amount of violence in there and the amount of anger in there, you're right. It does speak to where we are right now in many ways. Uh, in America, with the just the hatred, and and of course it's set in England, so it's not America. Um, but uh, anyway, it was nominated. Yeah, I'm a little. I was a little surprised to see Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange was nominated, uh, but it did not win. Uh, also nominated that year was a movie I just saw last year by chance, Fiddler on the Roof. Are you a fan of Fiddler on the Roof? You know, I, I saw the film on Turner Classic Movies like two, three years ago. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's a fact. It was, it, I mean, since the first time, I really hadn't seen it since then. I, you know, I mean, since it came out. And here's a t- here's a trivia question: Can you name the theater it opened in? It played in. Okay, I, I, I tell you why I remember that. Um, but yeah, now and the thing. Wait, time out. The fit that it had its premiere in. Well, no, it, it well in Chicago. Oh, in Chicago, uh, the Playboy Theater. No. Oh, what it what what theater? It opened it opened at the McClure Court Theater. Remember the McClure Court Theater? Oh yeah. Are you kidding me? McClure Court Theater for you youngsters out there is on the near north side of Chicago. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just just west of uh, Navy Pier. No, yeah, just west of Navy Pier. Right. It was a great theater. It was a really great theater. And the reason why I remember that, that's the movie that opened up the theater. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yeah. And I, actually, just recently, there's a website, I mean, an uh, Instagram site you should go to called Windy City Ballyhoo. Windy City Ballyhoo. And it's this guy, his name is Adam Carlson. You should have him on the show one day. Adam Carlson, and he collects, finds old uh, movie movie ads, Chicago movie ads from newspapers. You know, from the 1930s to like the 1970s. Okay? And he had, one of them was the original movie ad for Theater on the Roof, which was, hmm. you know, New opening, new theater, McClure Court Theater, pre proudly presenting Fiddler on the Roof. You know, that was the first movie to play at the McClure Court Theater. Hmm. Well, I, uh, I I saw it recently on an airplane. Uh, I watched it, rented it. For some reason, it was a featured movie on the airplane. I watched it and it did not stand up to the test of time. Uh, I remember liking a lot more in 1971 than I did uh uh, in or 2018, but there was a documentary about Fiddler on the Roof, which was pretty good, which I urge people to watch. It's a pretty interesting documentary to talk about the relevancy of Fiddler on the Roof as the play, the music. And when I saw the play recently, I saw the play, it was put on in Chicago about three or four years ago. I found it uh, very moving. Uh, and a lot of it in my mind is because it's infused with memories of Karen Lewis, my friend who passed on not too long ago, and Karen was Jewish. Uh, and, um, at, when my oldest daughter got married, she, Karen brought in these bottle dancers, which just right out of Fiddler on the Roof. And she said, if you're going to have a Jewish wedding, you have to have bottle dancers. And whenever I see Fiddler on the Roof, I sometimes watch that scene where they do the bottle dancing. I just think of my dear friend, Karen Lewis and how generous she was. So that's a personal memory for me and Fiddler on the Roof. All right. Last picture show. That's a good film. That's a really good film. Matter of fact, I saw that film once again for the first time in years on Turner Classic Movies. Even at Turner Classic Movies, you're missing a lot. And I watched it, and I thought, you know, maybe at the time I was too young to really understand what the film was really all about, okay? But, you know, as you get older and beaten up by life, as a friend of mine likes to say, you know, uh, you look at films later on and you it they tend to <laughs> have resonance for you. You go like, wow, that's a good movie. You know? Uh, I really didn't get it at the time. You know? Um, but yeah, uh, Last Picture Show is a really terrific picture about sort of like the whining days of the small Texas town um, in the 1950s. Um, it kind of well, of course, once again, uh, you notice things, you know, and you kind of notice like, uh, gee, uh, this is Texas. Is it the South? I mean, are black people in this town? <laughs> <laughs> or it, was this one of the towns that had one of those, one of those sundown laws? I don't know. <laughs> the movie doesn't go there. Yeah. But uh, no, it's a good film. It's a good film. It, 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 it's uh, on that particular. It's one of those movies that just pretends as though black people don't exist. 
Uh, it's uh, based on a book written by Larry McMurtry, who died not too well, long ago. Say that for a whole lot of movies at the time. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, you could say that about every Woody Allen movie he ever made. Um, but uh, anyway, it is a, a great flick, and I do believe it stands uh, the test of time. A very, uh, it's just uh, sort of a bittersweet image of of this town in a transition. Uh, and I, in my opinion, when I look at these. I think it's far more worthy of being the best picture than French Connection. Do you agree with me? Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. Of that list, yeah. And, well, and the final movie is Nicholas and Alexandra, which is a movie I don't even remember. <laughs> I, 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 if I saw it, I've forgotten it. Do you even remember that movie? I have that on Blu-ray. It's, you know, it's it was the last of its era. You know, the big, bloated... Uh, roadshow historical epic. Um, considering the subject matter, it should have been a hell lot more interesting. You know, the movie basically, you know, portrays it's you know it's about Tsar Nicholas and Alexandra, of course, the last Tsar in Tsarina Russia, who uh, were of course uh, before the Russian Revolution, and who were assassinated. Um, and the movie presents a very pastoral, very positive image of the Tsar and Tsarina. These two people who were in love, who um, were innocent of all these evil people who were around them, all those evil Bolsheviks and, you know, Lenin and Trotsky and... Um, Oh, what a sad story. Of course, conveniently forgetting that he was also a tyrant. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah, that guy part got left out. <laughs> right. That All that stuff seems to be sort of overlooked in this picture. Right. <laughs> uh, it's as much overlooked in this picture as black people are overlooked in Last Picture Show. Uh, and so... When when I told you that we were doing 71 uh, and you just instinctively sent back your favorite movies of that year and you did it so quickly that I don't even believe you looked it up. You just rattled it off the top of your head. None of these movies, not even uh, Last Picture Show were on the list. Can I mention you forgot a really important film that came in 1971. And that is? Sweet Sweetback. Uh, well, I presume... Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to joke and say you're talking about Shaft, but no, you're talking about Sweetback. Uh, and so talk about right. that. I watched that about two years ago, and it stands the test of time, in my humble opinion. Uh, tell folks about the significance of that movie. Well, Sweet Sweetback was a film directed by uh, Melvin Van Peebles. He wrote and directed it after his brief sojourn in Hollywood, where he made Watermelon Man. And a film, he independently raised the money, and he went out and decided he wanted to make the film in which a black man is the hero for a change. Uh, it's a very simply plotted movie uh, about this guy who um, one day is picked up by the police, um, and he pick up another guy as well. They start beating up the other guy, and Sweetback beats up and kills the two policemen, and after that, he's on the run. That's it. That's the movie. He's on the run, being chased by the police, uh, has various encounters uh, with women who gladly give, give their bodies because he's fighting for the cause. And uh, 
eventually he escapes to Mexico, and that's the movie. But at the time, it doesn't sound like much of a film, but at the time, it was revolutionary because of the subject matter and the fact that here was a black man paying dues. I mean, I mean, getting, you know, uh, 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 coming back to get his dues. You know, it's, it, it, it had a raw energy to it. Let me tell you, I have a friend of mine who kind of looks like him, okay, particularly when he was younger. And you know that scene in the movie where uh, Sweetback is with that woman with that motorcycle gang? Yeah. Where all, you know, all that um, Sweetback man, people's wearing is a derby hat, you know. And I, I sent the picture to my friend. I said, isn't this you? <laughs> with a derby hat. <laughs> but anyway. Um, that's all he's wearing. Yeah, that's all he's wearing. Just a derby hat, you know. Oh, and a bow tie. That's right. Um, <laughs> but that film was really radical. It was revolutionary at the time. And, you know, I remember I had a teacher uh, in school who saw the film and raved about the film to us. And we're young, very impressionable young people. Pre teenagers and she raved about this film to us this is a revolutionary film you must see and i go like okay let me go see it then you know <laughs> because if my teacher even though the movie was rated x yeah it was rated x you know and one thing you have to understand that back in chicago back in the day uh that the rating meant nothing they'll let anybody in to see a picture yeah back in the 70s that was a very chicago thing to do yeah as long as you had the money to pay for the um, for for the uh, uh, ticket, you know. So uh, I never had a problem getting in, despite it was R or X, you know. Uh, I I never had a problem. Yeah, it. Uh, I I didn't see that movie in real time. I guess because of the X uh, rating, I saw it uh, years later in college, uh, and it was part of a film festival. And they don't let the X rating scare you. You could have gotten in. You could have gotten in. Yeah, I probably could have. Was was uh, what was the first X movie? I, I'm asking you. I think last, uh, not. Oh my God. Uh, what was the the Marlon Brando movie in Paris? That was I. Was that X rated? Um, no, 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 no. That came later. Yeah, it may have been the first X rated. Paris. That came later. Yeah, last time in Paris. But it may be the first X rated movie I ever saw. If it was in fact uh, rated X. Uh, the movie that made you laugh when I suggested that it might be one of the best movies of the year was Shaft, which had a huge impression on me when I saw it. Uh, just a fabulous impression on me in many ways. Do a whole show on the significance of Shaft. And yet uh, it does not repeat. N.O.T., sorry, Gordon Parks, does not stand the test of time, in my humble opinion. I've watched it subsequently, and it's very hard to get through. Uh, so your thoughts on Shaft, which came out in 1971. I thought was, I, I didn't care for it. I didn't care for it. I thought the sequel, Shaft's Big Score, was even more ridiculous. <laughs> there was something very phony and plastic about that movie. Yeah. You know, it was very artificial. Uh, unlike other rotation films, they had a, a rawness to them and a more sense of reality, like Superfly or, the Sh or you know, The Mac or Three the Hard Way, or Hitman, or Trouble Man. You know, Shaft just came up as like, 
like uh, a kid putting on his parents, his father's clothes. They don't fit. That is a funny analogy, Shep. But you're talking about a film critic right now. You're looking at the world from 2021 perspective. You telling me back in 1971, you didn't love Shaft. No, I didn't. I didn't like it back then. There was, I mean, even as a kid, you may not articulate it. You're not able to articulate it, but you know something is off. You know something is off, okay? And Shaft, I was like, everybody is raving about it. I know the music. I saw Jim Brown. I said, James Brown did better scores, you know? And, of course, there's Curtis Mayfield's score for Superfly, which is one of the greatest scores ever, ever, okay? But, um, um, you know, Isaac Hayes is, you know, soundtrack is okay. You know, I remember he won the Oscar for it, and I remember everybody went crazy over it. And I was like, yeah, all right. You know, why don't you give it to Curtis Mayfield? That's a score for Superfly. All right. Uh, here's a trivia question for you, because I just, the only reason I know this is I just looked it up. I wanted to see if indeed Isaac Hayes did win the Oscar that year. And yes, he won it for best original song. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Right. But he did not win it for best original score. He was nominated, but he did not win it. For 10 trivia points, what was the winning score for the Oscars that year? Oh, brother. I can't even begin. To <laughs> you would never know in a million uh, years. 71. <laughs> score, 71. Um, I, what is it? I couldn't begin to guess. You couldn't. There's no reason you would. If you if you knew this, I would say there was something wrong with you. Um, summer of forty two. <laughs> Which you actually that's another movie you can't make today. That's a movie you couldn't make today. Yes, in the in the in summer of forty two, a young man uh, ends up having an affair with an older woman. Uh, who's distraught over the death of her husband? I'll just—that's I, I gave everything away, but it doesn't matter. You'll never see it anyway. And in 1971, when I saw it, I loved it. When I rewatched it, I couldn't believe <laughs> how bad it was. Oh Lord! Well, you know that's the thing. You know what? That was a film made for guys like us at that age because it's like your great dream. Like you have—I'm gonna—you got like a hot teacher in high school, and you keep thinking. <laughs> Oh man, it's just only, you know, and here's this kid in this movie who has sex with this, you know, attractive, I'm going to say the word, MILF in the film, you know, your dream come true. I bet that film doesn't play today at all, you know, at yeah. all, you know, but at the time it was, it was a big hit. It was a big hit. It was right? a huge hit. And I read the book that it was based on. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, it is, it, it so does not survive the years. Uh, it's embarrassing to see it. Uh, just the thought that the, the woman would want to make love with this kid is so preposterous on so many different levels. Uh, it's clearly the fantasy of the, the man who wrote the book and then the man who directed it. I'm sure we're all men. Uh, so it, it does not stand the test of time. But I just, I just want to point out that in right. no way should that movie have defeated uh, Isaac Hayes for best score? It clearly, 
yes, Isaac Hayes' score is not as good as uh, Curtis Mayfield, uh, his score from Superfly, or Marvin Gaye for Trouble Man, et cetera. You could go on the list. But it's better than anything else that came out in 1971. Uh, so... Uh, that's uh, my thoughts on that. And the other movie that you did that got shut out was Carnal Knowledge. Uh, what's your thoughts? Does that stand the test of time, Sergio? Carnal Knowledge? Uh, I have to watch it. I haven't seen it in a long time. Once, okay, two things. Once again, that was a movie that went over my head. You know, it, it basically, let me explain things to make it real simple for folks. If the movie was rated R, I would go see it. Okay. It was later art, the way what it was, I would go see it because it met the promise of sex and nudity. That's why I go see it. Now, and even though a lot of times the movie went right over my head, uh, that movie, I'm okay. Today, I have, like I said, I have to see the film. I haven't seen that film in many, many years, many years. I'm sure it'll play a lot different today to me than it did when it came out because I know when it came out, I didn't get it. I'm sure I know I didn't get it, you know. Uh, all I knew is that it's about men and women and having difficulty and and Margaret is naked in the film and uh, everybody talks about sex a lot. That's all I knew. Yeah, uh, very similar to me. We have very similar <laughs> views on I didn't know what the hell was going on in 1971. And I've, I've subsequently seen it and it does not really stand the test of time. Uh, but I think I know a little more about it. Right. And remember, this, the, the rating system the rating system had only been out for just over two years. So studios, and they were still experimenting. They were still saying, we have these new freedoms now that we never had before. As I like to tell people, I was around before the movies were rated. So um, students were experimenting with new freedom. Now we can do anything. We can show anything. Uh, now, now, and that very much has regressed now. Um, what's the last time you saw a nude woman in a movie, a Hollywood movie. You haven't, you know? When's the last time you actually saw a sex scene in a movie? I can't really think of right now. Uh, you don't do that anymore. And part of it is because actresses don't want to do it. Uh, this is, which is why usually directors want to try to get foreign film actresses because they have no problem with that. But, um, <laughs> You know, I have a I have a friend of mine, uh, a director friend of mine, who was developing this project uh, about this couple who was having marital problems, and the husband gets involved with another woman. Okay, the film wasn't made, and he was talking about, well, who should we get to play the other woman? You know, and he we banded banded around a lot of idea about of casting ideas. All of them were foreign actresses or English, because um, he said an American actress would not want to do these things. You know, a, a foreign actress would. They would have no problem with it. Uh, but the, the movie, we talked about it. We did a whole show. Borat, there's uh, scenes in that that come close uh, to full frontal nudity, as, as I recall. But again, that's a, an actress who was not born in the United States. So uh, to prove your point. All right, yeah, Bulgarian is she? Right, yeah. she's Bulgarian. Uh, by the way, I thought she, I, I, would, I could, I could make an argument for her winning uh, best supporting actress, but uh, that's neither here nor there. All right, uh, so let me close by asking you this: If you had to make a recommendation to a millennial uh, as to what 
movie is most worth watching from 1971, what movie would you recommend and why? Well, um, the number one film is a film that's not available, unfortunately, because the studio that made it is scared of it now. Um, and that is uh, The Devils by Ken Russell, a, a film that Warner Brothers has refused to release this on DVD. Um, people have been begging for it. It's, 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 it's so, it's, the movie's so controversial today. The Catholic Church will scream about it. Conservatives will scream, scream about it. Just look it up. Ken Russell's The Devils. But a film I would recommend that came out in 1971, also is controversial, that I would recommend is Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. That film I would really recommend. Now, there was a remake a couple years ago. Do not watch that. I haven't watched that remake. Just go to the original with Dustin Hoffman. It is unbelievable because it's about the innate violence in men. The innate violence as in all men. Yes, there is a... Uh, I really want to recommend this picture because I know it's going to get people angry. I don't care. Um, you know, there is uh, extreme violence at the end of this picture. It's, it's, the, the setup is that Dustin Hoffman plays a mathematician who has uh, who's on sabbatical, who uh, has come to live in the village where his wife is from, played by Susan George. And the townspeople don't like him. And Susan George plays a woman who evidently had a past in her past life. And the movie is explicit. There is a explicit rape scene in this movie, which uh, she actually gets to love. Oh, by you know, by the and movie is it's it, the scene is finished, and it ends with a really explicit, explicitly violent um, sequence, where these guys, okay, this is guy who has accidentally killed a woman who is hiding out in Hoffman's house. So these people have come in, these men have come in to basically get this guy, and Hoffman defends his home. You know, he says, I would not allow people to come into my house. And what follows is uh, some pretty extreme violence, including uh, boiling oil, shotgun blast, and a bear trap. Okay. And this is 1971. And, uh, and, and the reason why I like it is because, first of all, it's a really good picture. And Sam Peckham was one of the best directors ever. And number two, you can't make a movie like this anymore. Yes, I know there was a remake. Disregard the remake. It, forget it. Pretend it doesn't even exist. Okay? See the original, you know, uh, with Dustin Hoffman and Susan George and David Warner, directed by Sam Peckinpah. It's brutal. It's frank. Uh, I think I cut class also to see that movie. Yeah, no, I, 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 it, that was a scary movie, and I saw that. That is, I wonder if that was that was that X rated or R rated. I, I, uh, I, I R rated. I saw it. I was freaked the hell out of me. Oh, it, it was, it was back in the time. It was back in the time where you had to make cuts to get an R rating. It was rated X. The original version is available now. It's available. You can get it. You know, they had to make some trims in the movie. To get an R rating, um, in in the rape sequence, they had to make some cuts. Okay, those have been restored a long time ago. 
So, um, uh, yeah, it's R-rated. Yeah, no, that's a, a, a that was like that generation of that that era, seventy one, seventy two. There were quite a few movies of this type where, like, the civilized man would have to find his inner beast to fight off uh, the inner beasts that are the, the beast, the open beasts that are around us all the time. The Charles Bronson movies, Dirty Harry had a lot of that in it. Uh, we, there was just one that came out. I haven't seen it where. Um, Bob Oldenkirk plays this mild-mannered guy that you think is uh, just easy to pick on. What? Nobody. Did you see? I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet either. I haven't seen it. But it's the same sort of thing. Um, and then he finds the inner savage. So, yeah, that that's a tough movie to watch. I, 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 would, I would not recommend um, – I was going to say, if, if you had asked me this five years ago, I'd have said, definitely watch Shaft from 71. But I, I even I can't – Except for the opening, Sergio. I said this to you in the text. Greatest opening, one of the greatest openings uh, in the history of movies. The opening of Shaft. They stole it uh, for Saturday Night uh, Fever, and they just switched it around. Different song and a different actor, of course, John Travolta as opposed to Richard Roundtree. But it's just basically the same opening. Uh, and uh, so, you know, rewatch it. You could just look at it on YouTube, and then you don't need to watch the rest of the movie. Uh, all right, Sergio, before we go, I just have to share this with people. Sergio is really a Renaissance man. He, he's the host of a uh, classical music show uh, on uh, uh, WHPK in uh, University of Chicago. Anyway, when I asked him for his three favorite records of 1971, he, he's, <laughs> he was the only guy who responded with classical music. Uh, so everybody else was like, oh, Marvin Gaye and, uh, you know, like uh, – Carol King or you know Al Green or what have you. So Sergio, do the best you can of popular music from the time. Your three favorite movies of '71. Go ahead, no classical allowed. I'll let you do songs as opposed to albums. Three popular songs in 1971. Yeah. Yes. You mean I mean music 1971. Whatever James Brown came out with in 1971. You know. Uh, I can't name an album. And you have to remember, back in the day, James Brown was coming up with an album at least, or 45, at least every other week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was just coming in, they were just coming out like crazy. So I can't even pick an album or a song. All I know is that every other week he had a new song, you know? So whatever he did in 1971, I was there. All right, that's good enough. I actually do not think he had an original album, 71. He had some uh, live uh, albums, uh, I think, but I, it's one of those peculiarities the way he was churning out albums. Sergio is absolutely correct. So, anyway, Sergio Mims, uh, Black Harvest Film Festival, uh, thanks for sharing us your reminiscence of 1971. And uh, we'll talk to you real soon, all right? Okay. All right, that's Sergio Mims. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.